Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, criminologist Kelly Sundberg has some ideas about reducing violence on public transit systems. First Canadian title company president Daniela De Tommaso talks about mortgage fraudsters and fake home sales. Rental housing advocate Kit Souter offers some advice on finding a place to live. And Perk Eco founder Jennifer Henry talks about recycling those annoying single-use coffee cups. So, let's get started. Amalgamated Transit Union and other transit workers unions across Canada have been up in arms this week, making statements about violence on public transit across the country, which is on the rise, and including an alarming increase of unprovoked attacks. Now, we're talking Toronto, Vancouver, Edmonton, Winnipeg. The list, unfortunately, goes on and on. These uh, transit workers unions across the country calling for transit agencies and municipalities to implement greater security measures, and they want a national task force to be created to dive into all of this. Here to talk more about violence on transit is Kelly Sundberg, a criminal justice professor at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Professor Sundberg, Kelly, good morning and welcome. Yeah, good morning and thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, your thoughts, first of all, just on the uh, on the statements by the unions in response to, and we have it hit here in Vancouver on both SkyTrain and on our bus system. You've got the C-Train system in Calgary. Not exactly violence-free either, Kelly. What's going on? No, we've seen the increase in, in incidents on transit from coast to coast. Um, I do some work with my my group does uh, some work with crime prevention through environmental design we call it safe design with bc transit which is all of british columbia's transit outside of the lower mainland mm-hmm. um, i also sit on the uh, civilian oversight for calgary transit for their peace officers who unfortunately have to uh, uh get in who deal with some of the violence and and um have uh you know, these are being reviewed. I sit on that review board and I've been following the issues of transit, uh, violence on transit for quite some time. And I totally agree with the, uh, with the transit union leadership and in, in their assessment. I think this is a, a growing concern and one that, uh, that is going to require intervention and support and, and frankly, uh, sponsorship or, or financing from all levels of the government, municipal and regional to provincial and to federal. Okay, so now if there's more money made available, how best could it be spent, Kelly? Well, I think that there's there's a number of approaches that need to be taken. Um, it, for BC Transit, uh, they've adopted the security achieved through functional environmental design standard, uh, which they use at their, their facilities. That their, um, This is a crime prevention through environmental design. So this is how do we... It goes. It, how do we program spaces? How, what is the lighting levels? What are the uh, lines of sight? We look at a number of variables in the design, the physical design, but we also look at the policies. What kind of training do people go uh, receive? So this goes beyond the traditional SEPTED, as it's called, crime prevention through environmental design. And so it goes beyond that, and it looks at those those elements of of how do we train our staff? How do we do? Um, practice exercises on or, or or learn how to deal with uh, potential aggressive behavior and de-escalation. The other aspect is having physical security, having people out there. Uh, as um, it, you have the uh, transit police in, in the Greater Vancouver area, sure, yeah. Um, you have peace officers mostly. You know, in many transit systems here in Calgary, we have peace officers. Edmonton, Toronto, across the country. Right. We need to look at that. 
The other aspect is, is the uh, when we think of the riders themselves, we need to um, we need to ensure that the riders are aware that they feel comfortable and know how to report an incident, feel comfortable reporting an incident before you know when they see someone who's being uh, aggressive or being troublesome on the system to call someone and, and have the system set up so that someone comes and, and addresses and tries to reduce the the, the likelihood of that uh, that behavior escalating into violence. Um, and, you know, it, as a community, we have to understand that transit is most likely always going to be subsidized, that uh, this, is an, this is an investment in the community. Sure. And uh, when we have municipal governments or regional governments that are increasing the, the transit fare in this, um, th- this is not the answer. Um, the last part on this is we, it's clear that during the pandemic, transit systems across this country um, became places where people who were, were challenged with, uh, with homelessness um, were going to, to stay warm. They're, they're riding transit or going to transit facilities to stay warm. And often these individuals became victims of crime, too. So it's it's a it's a holistic approach. So the transit unions call for a federal task force. Right. I think is is incredible idea. I think it's fantastic. I think this is what's needed because the problems experienced in Vancouver are this are very similar to those in Calgary, Edmonton, Winnipeg, Toronto, for sure. Hamilton. It goes on. So it makes sense that we see a coordinated um, approach where we we, ha- we we truly invest in transit security. We we put the effort, have evidence-based solutions. So that's what I'm hopeful for. I hope that the governments uh, listen to the transit union, think of those uh, those those uh, union workers who uh, ensure that we get to work and to school safely every day. We need to support them and we need to uh, promote transit, especially it's part of the the the. Uh, sustainable approach, uh, an environmental approach to it. It's, it's transit's great. <laughs> what can I say? Transit's great. We need to ensure that transit uh, is safe for everybody. I want my kids to feel comfortable riding transit. Sure. I want to re- ride. I want to feel comfortable riding transit, and most importantly, I want the drivers and the operators and the staff who work at transit facilities. I want them to feel safe comfortable and supported so that they can provide the best transit service to all of us. And they're only going to get that if we do see more of an investment in transit security. Indeed, they're advertising for 500 bus drivers in the Vancouver area alone, Kelly, and those people are a little apprehensive, some of them, I'm sure, as to the degree of safety they're going to enjoy on the job. We'll talk about the National Task Force, hopefully, once one becomes uh, installed. We appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Have a great morning and and to all your listeners. As we turn our attention to something that is starting to happen in British Columbia, less so than in Ontario right now, but it's on the rise across Canada, it's mortgage fraud or title fraud in which people impersonate homeowners to obtain mortgages or in some cases con artists actually try and have enough documentation and evidence to present and sell a house they don't own to someone who, well, (laughs) has no idea what's going on. One of the measures one can take as a homeowner particularly to deal with all of this or at least be armed in in some to some degree ready is title insurance what on earth is title insurance well here to talk about it is the president of first canadian title in toronto daniela de tomaso joins us daniela good morning and thank you for being with us today 
Good morning. My pleasure. Thank so, you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. This is unsettling stuff. You hear, I mean, you imagine, imagine uh, you try it in your mind to imagine how this kind of thing might happen. But then, Daniela, it's because uh, of, the, of the fact that we've become a little disconnected from each other. The pandemic and the sort of virtual world in which we've all lived for the past couple of years has, in fact, enabled bad guys to do things that they might not have gotten away with under other circumstances, right? I think you're right. It is absolutely unimaginable. And although we have, as a company that specializes in this area and and would see fraud more than the average consumer, we've seen fraud throughout the years. But the nature of the fraud, the size of the frauds, that has definitely changed and is being amplified, both, as you say, by the fact that we're living in a digital world where we don't know our neighbors. We don't know the people that we deal with on a day-to-day basis as a lawyer or a realtor or as a title company. There isn't that intimacy in that relationship. And also, we're dealing in a time where the economy is putting a lot of strain on people. And we tend to see a direct correlation between a down market and people becoming more desperate and and taking some of these measures to try to, you know, get money yeah, it, it's it's hard to believe, but these fake home sales in which obviously pretty slick con artists and it takes a group of people. This is a, a, a sort of a gang effort, if you will. Uh, but, you know, to to really con someone into, into and you don't buy a house in Vancouver or Toronto, Daniela, for anything less than seven figures. So they're conning exactly. people out of astonishing amounts of money completely by fake, using fake documents, fake evidence. You're the one who sees a lot more of this than the rest of us. Talk a little bit about the techniques that get used. Well, this is the challenge that is, is that exists today, that they're so sophisticated. So if you were to look at some of the identification that is being used, an untrained person would never be able to tell the difference. Yeah. In fact, even as trained individuals who look at title and look at identity all day, we actually rely on third-party resources that are connected to government databases to make sure that the identity is who they purport to be so that we can compare the picture on the driver's license to what's in the ministry database. And and those access to that type of information is not widely available, which again, as a title insurance company, not only are we there to protect you in the event that there is an issue, but our biggest goal is to prevent these things from ever happening because we don't want to see consumers in this situation. And as a title company, we don't want to be paying out these claims either where they're avoidable. Sure. Uh, so let's, uh, let's uh, get right down to where the rubber meets the road here, Daniela. What is title insurance, please? So title insurance is a policy of insurance that can be bought either at the time that someone buys their home or if they were not made aware of it at that time, they can buy it at any time during their ownership. It's a one-time premium and the policy lasts for as long as you own your home. So it's unlike other insurances where you're paying, you know, monthly or annually. Right. And this protects you not only against fraud. Fraud is one of over 30 uh, covered title risks for a homeowner. We protect you against any issues that could affect the ownership of your title. If there's a survey issue, if there's a work order against your property that you were not aware of, if there are tax arrears, so you know now that we have these vacancy taxes across the country, right. if there was an issue with vacancy ta- taxes, title insurance would protect you against that. Fraud and forgery is a big one as well. But there are over 30 covered title risks. So anything to do with your title, if it's covered by the policy, when you become aware of that, 
It's a no-fault method of claims resolution, which means you literally, you pick up the phone, you call the title company. We have a right to step into your shoes, and we take on the process of figuring out what happened, who's responsible. We have to pay any legal fees incurred in the course of trying to rectify the problem. We are, you know, someone to hold your hand through that process, and at the end of the day, we also indemnify you against any loss or damage. Now, you talk about a single premium insurance approach rather than paying monthly or annually. So is the premium based on the value of the property? It is. It is. So typically we have a fixed premium for up to uh, $500,000 in Ontario. That's how it works. And then there's an additional premium of uh, uh, $0.80 per thousand over that. If you own your home, the base uh, premium, for example, is $200. And then there's an additional premium, again, in excess of a certain value. So it really is a negligible cost. And in in BC, we see often that lawyers who are, you know, valued lawyers and notaries are valued partners there. They deal at the time of a, a purchase of a property. And where there's already title insurance being obtained for a lender, which happens very commonly, the additional policy for an owner is $50. So again, it's a negligible cost to have that peace of mind and to know that we're a second line of defense in taking a look at title, making sure that everything is okay, and then in the event that there is an issue, we're there to support you. Right. In the, in the case of a lender, a mortgage company or, or bank or whatever institution, is it customary, Daniela, for those uh, lenders to insist that you, the new homeowner, have title insurance as part of the package bef- before they grant you the mortgage? No. In fact, they will leave that up to the notary or lawyer and the customer to choose. Lenders will often require insurance for them, but it's not their place to insist on that for the owners. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the bad guys, if you don't mind, because you're in the position to, you're, you're dealing with the after effects, uh, or in some cases, a work in progress where somebody's trying to be ripped off and they, they, they back away and go, just a second, I'm going to check on this. And then you find Absolutely. out about what's going on. Absolutely. So we see both scenarios. In a scenario where the fraud has actually happened already, then we are there again to try to clean this up. How do we establish who the rightful owner is? Has there been a fraud? And then in Ontario and BC, the the remedies are a little bit different. Um, But in either case, there's a mess that has to be unraveled. And there's costs associated with that. What we find is, again, the fraudsters, they're falsifying identification. We see that in many instances, there are cases where um, you're a landowner or a property owner that isn't living in the home. So the property is rented. And we're finding a thread where it is the renter that's actually perpetrating these these frauds. Mm -hmm. They tend to accept offers at lower than market value. So these deals happen fairly regularly. If you're an absentee owner, again, that makes you at higher risk. If you don't have a mortgage on your property, It's easier for a fraudster to deal with a property that's unencumbered. So if there isn't a mortgage on your property, then that typically puts you at higher risk for these types of of frauds as well. So we're cautioning everybody, you know, protect your personal identification. If you're not living in the property, make sure that you have someone going by the property to regularly check. There's instances where there's for sale signs on the property. They're actually listed online. So make sure as an owner who's not living in a property, you are doing that additional due diligence as well. 
Interesting stuff. And your website, fct.ca, First Kennedy, I'm sorry, First Canadian title, title. fct.ca, contains a lot more really good information, very practical stuff in terms of homeowners being able to protect themselves in ways that perhaps they hadn't even imagined up until quite recently. Absolutely. And I would encourage anyone who wants more information about title insurance to visit our website, which, as you mentioned, is fct.ca, or to call. We're happy to talk them through this because I know this is very overwhelming. And again, BC is one of the provinces in Ontario that has a lot of support through, you know, both the Land Title Survey Authority and the Assurance Fund. So from a consumer protection, there's lots of support there in the event that something happens. But again, we are that extra layer of protection. We don't just cover fraud. And it's really unfortunate that we're even having to talk about these types of things. It it, it really is unimaginable. Yeah, it's quite unfortunate. But thank goodness we are able to have the conversation. And I'm very grateful for your time on a Sunday morning, Daniela, to uh, to set aside a few moments for us to bring us uh, on the West Coast uh, up to speed on this whole business of title insurance. Thanks very much. Thank you for raising awareness. I appreciate the time. More evidence this week from Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation this time around that uh, living in Metro Vancouver means uh, if you're a renter, you're probably paying the highest rent in all of Canada. Here to talk more about it is Kit Souter. He was a renter and housing advocate and principal with Souter Strategy here in Vancouver. Kit, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Fairly. Happy to be here. Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, no surprises here. More evidence. It's, it hasn't changed a whole lot in the last few years, has it, kid, in terms of Vancouver being the priciest rental spot in the country? Well, it hasn't changed in that it's the most expensive place, but it has changed in the fact that it keeps getting ratcheted up. So um, when we look at comparative uh, rents, the CMHC report shows that we're looking at the highest uh, rental hikes uh, in more than two decades, and we're looking at the highest disparity between occupied rental units and what the market rents are currently being set at, at over 43% uh, of difference. And we're looking at overall rental rates that are the highest that they've been at least since 2001. So we're talking about two generations of people now who have been living in what can easily be defined as a rental crisis. Right. And the vacancy rate, if anything, has actually uh, gone down uh, from 1.4% to 1.3%. Again, the lowest in the country. Well, and that's nationally. If you look at the Vancouver CMA, which is the entire metro region, we're actually looking at a 1.9% national vacancy rate uh, last year to now being 0.9%. Wow. Um, The the only place in the country that is... uh, as bad as that is um, Quebec City, and only because they couldn't secure enough data to actually definitively tell whether it was 0.9 or 1.1. And so apart from that uncertainty, uh, Vancouver is far and away the worst place. Uh, Best places to live, even though every major metropolitan across the country uh, in the top 10 and 32 of the 37 uh, metropolitan regions across the country had huge collapses in their rental vacancy rate is Edmonton. Edmonton went from a mid-7% vacancy rate to still over 4%, which is a relatively healthy market. Um, and Vancouver's nowhere close. And the reason for that is Edmonton, uh, back in 2014 and in years since then, made choices to create permissive zoning, make it possible to build four or six units on lots, do subdivision, and build townhouses. And so as a consequence of that, Edmonton has been able to keep pace with high demand uh, as oil has moved up and down. And people have migrated back and forth to northern Alberta. 
Interesting stuff. So you talked about the the increase, the rent rate increase in Vancouver being extraordinarily high. Is that partly just a supply and demand reality kit uh, for every apartment available? You know, 50 people show up or at least inquire as to its availability, et cetera, et cetera. And with that kind of high demand guaranteed, you can pretty much charge whatever you want. That's absolutely right, Sterling. And the uh, the nationwide average rent increase went up 5.6% year over year. That has nothing on the higher than 12% uh, differential that happened in Vancouver and Toronto markets. Um, and that's simply a consequence of the fact that we do not build enough housing. Canada, as a nation, has one of the lowest rates of units of housing per person of the uh, OECD countries. Uh, that's the developed industrialized states right. uh, across the world. And um, we're nowhere near building at the rate that other countries are. We built more rental units last year uh, and most of the last five years than we ever had in 50 years. And nevertheless, in the last three years, as a consequence of a whole host of factors, we actually saw that the demand for rent outpaced it by at least 1.5% in every major market. So is part of that uh, a reluctance on, on the part of investors, Kit, to, to sink their capital into purpose-built rental housing, uh, given that there are, are much less risky places to put your loot? Yeah, so in the last seven years, we've seen a huge swing towards uh, purpose-built rental housing as a consequence of provincial and federal policies that have supported it and stable low interest rates for most of the last half decade. But the reality is that um, there are safer places to get bang for your buck. And the thing that is underpinning the instability is actually local zoning and decision-making at City Hall. Right. right? The average timeline for a house, Sterling, is over 20 months now to get permitting and shovels in the ground so that your project's completed. Um, And so when you're looking at larger projects, uh, especially more than 50 units, you're looking at three, three and a half years of timeline before you're able to actually get certainty on whether or not the project's going to go. And as we have all witnessed in the last three years, a lot can change in that time. Indeed. So we've got a new City Hall administration, Ken Sim and the ABC crowd running Vancouver now, uh, and well aware of uh, crime in the streets and public safety matters and specifically housing. Uh, The premier is from the west side of Vancouver and seems to be quite determined to encourage, nudge, nudge, uh, municipalities to accelerate their approval process. Do you see in the cards any improvement, even short term? Uh, no, I don't actually, Sterling. Uh, I think that there's been a lot of talk um, by Ken Sim and ABC Vancouver about how they want to speed up permitting. Right. Speeding up permitting isn't going to solve the problem on the purpose-built rental crisis because there isn't as of right zoning in the areas where it's needed. Um, and so we've already seen expedition on a couple of the main thoroughfares allowing uh, what would be referred to as one in five, uh, six-story purpose-built rentals with commercial um, along places like Knight Street, Fraser, um, Renfrew. Um, but the fact of the matter is we need additional density and infill across communities throughout Vancouver. Um, 85% of the residential land in Vancouver is zoned for single-family homes still. Uh, there are folks who will push back and say, well, you can do a duplex, sure, but you still have to go to City Hall and, and finagle how that project actually gets approved. Um, and only 15% of the population of the city lives in those housing units. So we need to get to a place where people who own their land can choose to do what they want with it. 
Um, for me and my family, I've got uh, in-laws who are immigrants and, and don't have full fluency or control of English. I'm planning right now in my 30s for what it looks like in our 40s and 50s. And will they be able to cohabit with us? Will we be able to do home care? Mm-hmm. How are we going to be able to build a property that can have multi-generational living, right? Townhouses, uh, a quadplex with a little small square uh, in the center where you can have family barbecues and spend time together but still have separated living arrangements. Right, right. Um, or, or stacked townhousing, right, where you do 1,100, 1,200 square feet per floor and you're able to get uh, three to five units of housing, some with accessible access with a, a ramp down from the front door um, so that you can have people live uh, and age in place and that's a way to make sure that you keep family together and, and you keep people uh, loved and healthy. Strategy question for you, uh, Mr. Souter. Uh, if you're going looking for a rental a property, uh, have cash with you, because if you like it, you should make a deposit on the spot, because if you don't, the person looking at it next is likely to. Good strategy? Unfortunately, yes. Um, the, the reality is that the rental market is so tight. My wife and I... Um, moved to Vancouver in 2017 from Victoria. We got a place in the same building that we live in today and immediately started looking for a two bedroom. Um, it took us uh, more than three years to um, have a kid. Mm-hmm. And then when we had a kid, it took us 21 months to find a two bedroom in debt. So my wife and I spent the majority of the time that our daughter was born sleeping on a mattress on the floor between our kitchen table and our couch um, in our one bedroom because we simply could not find a place with reasonable rents and enough room. In the time that's passed since we moved in, uh, in December of 2021, the rents have gone up uh, across the city from an average of 2,900 uh, for a two bedroom unit to uh, close to 3,900 for a two bedroom unit. And uh, it doesn't look like there's going to be any particular relief anytime soon. Interesting stuff and not welcome news by any stretch. Kit, thanks for getting up early on a Sunday morning to remind us of the rental crisis we find ourselves in in Metro Vancouver. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Sterling. And I hope people get out and tell their city halls to uh, rezone their cities to allow more housing for more neighbors. Here, here. Thanks, Kit. According to our friends at the Vancouver Sun, a plan by Vancouver's ABC Majority Council to scrap the city's controversial single-use cup fee is drawing mixed reactions. Supporters of the move say the fee is unnecessarily punitive for consumers and small businesses. Critics say it's a tragedy and backward thinking at a time when the city's landfills are awash with disposable cups. The debate has obviously left both sides asking, well, how best can you deal with the problem? Well, there's a solution being offered by one Vancouver company. It's called Perk Eco. Its founder is Jennifer Henry, and she's here with us this morning to talk about perhaps another option. Jennifer, good morning, and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, talk a little bit about Perk Eco, uh, your company. How long has it been around and uh, the the impetus for its foundation? Yeah, we've been around since uh, April of 2020 was when we launched, right as coffee shops were shutting down at the right. beginning of the pandemic. Oh, great timing, huh? <laughs> that was interesting time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we've... Um, we, we, we formed we, we started the company because we saw that this problem that the single use cups that are recyclable uh, we're getting landfilled sure. uh, yeah and it's just one of those things that when you work in in you know I worked in the industry I've worked in recycling for 
I think, 12 years now, and I could see a solution in place. Uh, I knew that there were processors that wanted the single-use cups at the end of their life. So there are, uh, you know, processors in place that want to recycle these materials. They want those cups. And I see consumers with the cups wanting to recycle them, but really not sure how to do that. Right, yeah. And the coffee shop owner, uh, I saw them struggling because they don't really have any great solutions available to them to get this cup from the coffee drinker's hand to the right processors. So there's this really, um, there's just a bit of a missing link, uh, and that is the logistics, sorting the cup at the, you know, at the coffee shop and making sure that it gets picked up and sent to the right processor. It's not a lot of rocket science involved. Mm-hmm. It's really just, you know, thinking it out and putting in place, uh, filling that, that gap, those missing pieces to get the cup from A to B. So the 25 cent fee that is so controversial these days and perhaps may indeed be scrapped, that was all about uh, sort of forcing people when you hit them in the bank account, no matter how hard or small, uh, it it does uh, cause a person to stop and think, well, am I just throwing away money here? Uh, So the the point was that you, you if you were paying extra for it, maybe you would think at least about doing something with it. But of course, it's only a quarter, Jennifer. So people went whatever and and just threw the cup away after their coffee, right? Yeah, the behavior change that the fee was supposed to create didn't really happen. Yeah. Um, and it, was, it wasn't surprising because we've seen this happen in other countries around the world um, where they have imposed what they call a latte tax over in the UK yes. uh, in, certain, in certain areas. Um, and so we knew going in, uh, you know, people in the industry, in the recycling industry, knew going in that this would create a, a, a tiny amount of behavior change. Some people would start bringing their own cup or choosing a ceramic mug, mm-hmm. but that it would be small. Um, and so that's what we've seen over the past year. My coffee shops tell me that on average there's about a 4% re- reduction uh, once they put the fee in. And that's met the maximum reduction that the coffee shops on board our program have seen is that 4%. Uh, that's not enough. No, that's it- not It's It's a negligible amount, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So talk to us about your coffee shops. Again, we're just uh, learning a little bit about your company, Perk Eco. So how did you get these coffee shops on side and what do you do? Yeah, so one by one, really, we walk in, we talk to them, we ask them what they have available for their current recycling solutions. And we pick up where their recycling options leave off. So we let them know that, you know, we it's not just the cups we accept. We take 90% of the waste, all of the single-use packaging. Okay. The coffee bags, the coffee cups, the pastry bags, the stir sticks, all the stuff that the traditional recyclers don't want because it's messy. Right. <laughs> That's the stuff. We're built for the mess. That's the stuff we want. And so we show them that, okay, here's, you know, here's all of the materials that we accept, and here's the fund that supports our services. It's your 25-cent eco-fee. You shouldn't be just, you know, charging the fee and, you know, rolling it into your regular operating revenue. Use this fee to support some positive green change to right. recycle all of your waste. So, you know, we show them a way to do it, uh, and it's not just in Vancouver. We do it Canada-wide. Uh, we pick up uh, at coffee shops. We uh, teach them how to implement the 25-cent eco-fee, even if they're not from Vancouver and they don't have to implement the fee. 
Ah, so the, the fee, the 25 cent fee actually is useful for you and for this effort because it allows the coffee vendor cash flow to do the recycling. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's what it's for, you know, to create the, the change, to keep the cups out of the landfill, using that money for its intended purpose, which is to keep it. So, Jennifer, if the uh, Vancouver administration, for example, the Sim ABC crowd at City Hall now in charge decides to scrap the 25 cent fee, is that going to be a, 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 a hammer on, on your business? And will that will some people back away going, well, I don't have I don't have that cash flow anymore? I don't feel like it will be. We're gonna we'll, we'll see what the coffee shop owners say. We'll, I, I'm really curious to to hear what happens if um, if Mayor Sims does and and his ABC Council if they do get rid of the fee. I'm not sure if it's gonna affect us in in in, in a big way either way, but mostly because. We've been teaching our coffee shops to put this fee on board since 2019. Right, okay. So before this regulation came into place, we were teaching them to charge this fee. So we taught them early on. Then man, our shops were like, well, I'm already doing that. So <laughs> we're, we're, we're ahead of regulation here. So and, and, and also it doesn't have to be necessarily if it gets scrapped, for example, that's only in the city of Vancouver. And it, it, the, the, the 25 cent could still be included in the price of coffee. It just doesn't have to be separated out on the receipt anymore. Right. That's right. Okay, so it doesn't sound very expensive from a coffee shop owner point of view, though, Jennifer. No, it really isn't. Um, it's, it's, you know, no more than your regular recycling bill might be. Um, but it's just that it's customized to the materials, that the waste materials that your coffee shop is generating. Okay, you talked about all the messy stuff that, uh, that you collect. What do you do with it? Yeah, we hand sort. <laughs> that's the big difference. There's the mess, right? Um, yeah, that's the mess. You have to expect it, be equipped for it, and just know that it's coming in. Um, and hand sort all the materials to get them. Uh, you know, we stack the cups, we stack the lids, uh, and we we make sure that we we send them to the right North American processors instead of shipping them overseas or overseas. We find the the processors in North America that want these cups and these lids and these pastry bags and the composters, the recyclers. They're all there. The infrastructure is in place. We, we just need to use it in the right way and send them the right materials at the right time. So are you, have, are you founding, have you found, rather, that as uh, time has gone on, because you've been at this now for a couple of years, Jennifer, has business picked up? Has business improved, particularly since this fee became a reality? Yeah, it's been the past nine months that really that we've seen a consistent onboarding of new coffee shops coming on board. Um, and I think it's just that they've begun to start to come out of the pandemic shocks, all of the, the closures and the regulations and the staff shortages and the supply chain shortages. They're now starting to kind of, um, you know, level like off a, bit, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's been, it's been a consistent growth just over the past uh, eight or nine months. Okay. And so do you suspect even if they do drop the fee in the city of Vancouver, you're, you're, it doesn't sound like you're expecting much of a decline in terms of activity. 
it's possible we'll see a bit of a decline in Vancouver proper, uh, but we serve every zip code in, in or every uh, zip and postal code postal in uh, right. North yeah. America. Oh, so zip and postal. Good for you. Okay. We use UPS for our, for our logistics because it's carbon offset. We're using existing vehicles on the road. We don't want to put more garbage trucks on the road. Um, we want to use existing infrastructure. So UPS does our pickup for us. So they pick up from anywhere in North America and bring it back to us here in Vancouver where we can process it. How about a website where our listeners can go and uh, learn more about Perk Eco, Jennifer, please? Yeah, thanks. It's um, www.perk.eco. So perk.eco. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.